Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. Peters Valley School of Craft provides unique opportunities to explore and develop your fiber arts skills. Learn from experienced instructors and engage with a vibrant community of artists in fully equipped studios. With a focus on traditional techniques and innovative approaches, Peters Valley offers a variety of workshops like creative visible mending, willow trays, and introduction to textiles. Unleash your creativity in our serene setting, a close drive from New York City or Philadelphia. Visit petersvalley.org to start your journey today. I'm your host, Long Thread Media co-founder, Ann Marrow. It's hard to know where to start with Sarah Sweat. She's well known as a tapestry weaver, but she's also a knitter and spinner. And she writes about weaving and weaves about writing. She's serious about the playful elements of her work and imbues it all with a sense of delight. So Sarah, I know that you are located in a beautiful spot in Idaho, kind of not too far from the Washington border. And in some ways, I feel like that spot where you are touches so much of your work. Can you tell me just a few of the different ways that what you see around you kind of comes into your work? Oh, gosh. Yeah, the Palouse is just, it's an exquisitely beautiful agricultural area. Um, These rolling, sensuous hills of peas and lentils and wheat and garbanzo beans. Yum. Um, It is. It's it's wonderful to live in a place so abundant. And and the the lentils that we grow here, the pardinas, are particularly delicious. Uh, Well, I don't grow them, but (laughs) the farmers do. And I, I think... When I first began weaving tapestry, absolutely almost everything I did was related to those curvy hills. And I'm not sure I noticed it initially, but they worked their way in. And if, well, I, I, I was about to say, of course, but it maybe is not obvious to non-tapestry weavers that weaving curves on a grid is not always the simplest, smoothest thing. And one of the things I learned early on as a tapestry weaver, probably because of those very hills, was how to weave nice curves. Mm. And that's always stayed with me, whether or not I was actually weaving those curves. And I've always loved swirly designs. Although at the moment, I'm working, at least with tapestry, mostly with uh, geometry Mm. and more square and rectangular shapes, which has been very interesting to notice, which I think is maybe material driven. But but I certainly were, because I've lived here a long time, I'm really influenced more and more by the materials also that I can find locally, many of which are found everywhere. I just actually today picked some dandelions to see if I could weave with those. Um, and they are, <laughs> you know, everybody has dandelions. Oh, yes. Uh, so that is not a that is not an unusual thing. But Nettle, for instance, and dogbane and the local milkweed have have worked their way into my work more and more. And I guess, yeah, place. Place feels really 
important to all of it. And I, I don't necessarily know exactly why, but I, because I don't even know how I would weave if I were somewhere else, <laughs> because I have never woven living anywhere else. So did you, are you a self-taught tapestry weaver or how did you develop as a, as a weaver? I read something in your wonderful newsletter recently, which is called The Gusset, which I love. Uh, and you said something about having left school because there was nothing at school that was as interesting as knitting. And so I know that you went to school on the East Coast and then somehow you find yourself in Idaho as a weaver. Um, a series of small steps and most of them accidental. When I left college that first time, yeah, just I was mostly interested. I was more interested in yarn and knitting. And I knew that there were some interesting weaving happening on the East Coast. And I actually sort of assumed I would go back and I kind of wanted to learn to weave. But at the moment, I, I was at the time, I was a passionate knitter. And I had just started using yarn from this sheep farm in Maine, which I don't even know if it still exists. But I had found, I'd finished this cooking job. This is a, three steps backwards, but I'd finished a cooking job for the summer before I started my freshman year. And I happened to go into, sto into a store on this small island in, in Maine where I was working. And there was this pile of yarn. And I just thought, I have to have that yarn. And I had been a knitter for a long time and I'd knit my way through high school. But anyway, I, I bought the yarn and then partway through the semester, I ran out to knit a sweater for my brother is what I was doing. And, and uh, I just, on the thing, it said, Christopher Sheep Farm, Richmond, Maine. And I wrote them a letter and said, I have this yarn, I have run out. And they said, here's how you get more. And I just kept ordering yarn from them. And I think I knit four sweaters that whole year, which is a fair number of sweaters when you're supposed to be in college full time. So I, by the end of the year, I, I just felt like I needed to do something, something different. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like an awful lot of money to put into figuring out ways to skip class so I could knit. <laughs> so I, uh, I, my, my aunt, my mother's youngest sister, lives in Idaho. Oh, okay. Or she, she actually had been living in Montana and she and her husband had just bought a piece of property and I came to help them on their place. And turned out she was also a knitter and so we would knit and things, but mostly we were, work, we were digging. So <laughs> it turned out I was quite good with a shovel and a pick and I, um, a draw knife. I learned to peel poles and we were just literally building their their house and digging ditches mm -hmm. for water lines and things. And through, again, it's, it's all a series of steps, but through happenstance, my uncle had a, had a small plane and another friend came in with his small plane on this dirt airstrip that they had owned part of by their property, which is why they had bought the property. Anyway, we flew into this Idaho wilderness area where there are some small homesteads and met some people who subsequently needed help. And later that year, they called me. I was back in New Hampshire and said, do you want a job? So I ended up, again, one thing after another, living in the middle of the Idaho wilderness, learning to be a mule packer and an outfitter and cooking for six months and knitting and knitting and knitting and knitting. And I brought in all that Christopher Sheep Farm yarn on the back of a mule or in a tiny airplane and lived there for five years. And wow. I learned to spin there. That was where I learned to spin from that article of Deb Robson's mm. that she published. I think I wrote about it in, in the gusset somewhere. Mm -hmm. Anyway, push came to shove after five years. It was time to move to a place with a town. And I thought it was time to go back to school. And I came to the University of Idaho, which is up here in the Palouse, where I was describing earlier. And I took a lot of science classes because that's what you have to do when you decide you're going to be a veterinarian for, oh. don't ask me why, 
well, I guess the reason at the time was that I was spending a lot of time with mules and and animals. And I thought, well, that's a job that sounded interesting to the skills that I had. It never occurred to me to be a textile person. So I spun and knit my way through biology and chemistry and physics. And then I found out about the weaving class that they had. And the University of Idaho at that time had an absolutely spectacular weaving program. And it was run by a woman named Shirley Metzger. It was basically her her thing. She ran the, she was ahead of the textiles thing and what's now called the, the Department of Family and Consumer Sciences, then HOMAC. HOMAC. And it was in the third floor of this giant, this giant room with wood floors and huge windows and dozens of looms. And at that time, I had come from this very practical place where I had been, you know, not subsistence. I mean, we were paid, we were, my job in the wilderness was, was a paid job, but you had to be extremely practical to live there because you would, it was very isolated and using what was at hand, you just couldn't shop for six months of the year. And then you had, it was, you know, 50 miles by hiking and car to get to a store. So we didn't shop much. So using what was at hand was really, really essential to that. And I think now, what, why did I go off on that tangent? Well, I don't know what, if it matters why we went off on that tangent. Let's see if we get back to it. But anyway, we are, we're, I, was, I was up in the top of the weaving room. Oh, because the reason the things I wanted to make were practical things. <laughs> I wanted to make blankets. I wanted to make fabric to sew. I wanted to make functional cloth was, was my goal. And I took one semester of weaving and then I was starting a second semester weaving. I ended up dropping calculus. As one does. Assuming, <laughs> as one does. I, I thought I thought maybe I would get back. I could get back to calculus, but I would never have this opportunity to try all these looms and all this stuff again. And the second semester, Shirley made me her TA, so I got to help all the other students and beginners warp their looms, and I got you know very good and very comfortable with different materials and different problems and and working on four and eight harness looms and patterns and reading drawdowns and all that stuff. So the Weavers Guild, the local Weavers Guild, as Weavers Guilds do, decided to have a tapestry workshop uh, with Joanne Hall, who was an amazing tapestry. We- well, she's a weaver of many things. And she mostly worked in a way using a kind of a rose path, a tapestry on rose path, which some people think is not tapestry, but we don't have to go there. It has, it has some continuous weft. And anyway, she, it was a weekend workshop. And I told Shirley, I was completely not interested. Absolutely not. I'm making baby blankets and and yardage. And she said, come on, Sarah, you should take it. And I was like, no, Shirley, really, I, I, I'm just not going to. And she said, I'll give you extra credit. <laughs> and at that point, you know, I was, I was still half my brain was thinking I was going to go to vet school and I needed good grades. And I, I mean, it was like, all right, Shirley, if it means that much, I will take this workshop. Yeah. And of course, I loved it and was astonished by this ability to use yarn to make pictures. And I think it had just not, it just had not entered my head that that was a reasonable, reasonable thing to do. And I guess I had spent a lot of time and my training in a sense for the last six years had been about being practical and reasonable. I mean, as though living in the wilderness is a practical, reasonable thing to do. (laughs) Well, the thing that I noticed in all of what you're talking about is that even when you're talking about the textiles program, you know, you're not talking about a fiber arts program. And it's it's interesting because 
art and and visual arts is so much a part of your work that it's very interesting to think that you were doing something that was not graphic per se. Absolutely. Yeah, no, 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 I wasn't. And I, I did like drawing and I would draw sometimes. And I had taken, I did take a drawing class about the same time. But again, it had never occurred to me to combine the two. And I certainly never thought of myself as an artist. Mm-hmm. It took years to get there and to notice that that's actually the direction I was most drawn to, that it was light, that light and texture were what I was after. And I, I think I almost didn't know what I liked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, you, you know you know what you like. You know, it's interesting you're talking about kind of the influence of where you, you are and also being practical and also kind of drawing from what you have. And a couple of things that I've seen you work on over the last few years are cordage, which is coming from all kinds of plants in your area. But then also these really enchanting coffee filters, which, I mean, talk about something that's right at hand. So you can hardly get more at hand than your morning coffee. But can you tell me a little bit about turning these materials into something that really speaks to you? It's hard to know where that desire came from. I think the the cordage part, I'm pretty sure I actually initially came, the idea to try making it came from seeing the work of Alice Fox, who was a British, amazing British textile artist who uh, recently wrote wrote a book called Wild Fiber, Wild something. And anyway, I I saw her her making cordage on Instagram. And I just had this thought, I must try that. I must, you know, just how sometimes you see something and you must. Mm-hmm. And it came as part of a progression. All three of them, I think, uh, what my friend Velma Bolliard, who's an amazing weaver of paper and, and spinner of paper of uh, Kemi Ito and Shifu. Shifu is the woven paper and Kemi Ito is the spun paper. And she's the first person I heard of those words from. But she, she said, oh, Sarah, you're having a you're off on a cellulosic adventure. <laughs> and I had been entirely a wool person before that. And I think it actually happened almost as Rebecca Mezoff and I were recording the Fringeless class. And I believe in that class, I actually said something to the effect of, I am a wool girl. That is all I am interested in. <laughs> and I remembered that later because very shortly afterwards, I suddenly thought, I have this ancient strick of flax. Okay. Can I spin it? I didn't like spinning it 25 years ago when I got it, but let me try one more time. And somehow the flax led to the cordage and seeing what was available. And the elemental nature of using things from my backyard just it just thrilled me in a way that it's hard to describe. I, I heard a wonderful weaver one time talk about the frisson that you get that little sort of bit of that chill when something is a thing you absolutely must try and and I know that the cordage using leaves definitely felt that way and I was using initially iris leaves and I think it was it was summer so there were iris leaves there were daylily leaves mm-hmm. there were just all sorts of things around that were very easy but also very brittle although the moment I had made my first cordage I had a warp ready for something completely different, just a small fringeless warp. And well, I wonder if I could weave this into the warp. And 
that, I mean, it was just almost instant within a, a day, I think, that I was weaving tapestries with the cordage, which had, again, not been my intention, not been my purpose, but just blew me away. Yeah. Um, how beautiful it looked in the over under weft face structure. So that then opened the window to what else can I put into a warp that isn't wool that I can find. And so I was trying leaves and then I learned more about milkweed and dogbane and other bast producing fibers. And a lot of the Nespers, the Ninipu in this area, have used dogbane for centuries to make exquisite bags and uh, fishing line and all manner of textile things. And I was like, and this is here. This is, this is linen that is here. I mean, it's not linen, but it has those qualities. And that, again, just thrilled me. And of, of course, then you have to try. And my first attempts were horrible. So what is the difference between, you know, making cordage and spinning? Is it are the fibers redded? Is it just something that you twist in hand? What exactly is cordage? I've, I've said cordage as though I know what it is. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's, there's probably an official definition. The way I see it is fibers twisted together essentially to make a, a two-ply yarn uh -huh. or two-ply. I don't, well, there we go. What is yarn? Is yarn attenuated fibers? And these are hand attenuated in that each fiber is placed individually into place or each uh -huh. maybe a small bundle of fibers are put into the twist and attached individually so that I am literally twisting each bit of twist I'm adding with my fingers. I will twist one small bundle of fibers away from me and then move it toward me. So I'm spinning and plying mm. essentially in two steps as you go. So you end up with a balanced cord. Mm -hmm. You're making a cord, a balanced cord that does not then need further dealing with. It is ready to go. Whereas spinning, usually you spin and then you ply afterwards. And are you doing this with plants that still have all of their, is it just the phloem the way that it would be if you redded it and hackled it and all that stuff? Or is it the whole plant? Um, well, it depends on the plant. So if I'm using a leaf, for mm -hmm. instance, I will literally, uh, well, like daylily leaf or an iris leaf, I will get a dry leaf or pick it and, and dry it and then tear it into strips, essentially, of whatever thickness either it will tolerate or I want, and then re-dampen it after it's dried. And then the, in the re-dampening, it becomes flexible okay. and I can make cordage out of just the straight leaf. And I think that's what I will probably do, like with the dandelion stems or with all manner of things. With the milkweed and the dogbane, historically, I believe, now this is where I get, I get confused because what people say and what may actually have been done. Ugh. So there is the easiest way to find it is in the spring, the fibers have been rotting all winter. The, stock, the stalks have been rotting, sort of like controlled rotting, the controlled redding of, of flax. Only this is just out in whatever the winter is, has done. And so you come in the spring and you can literally sort of pull these fibers off of the stalks. And they're all different lengths and they're pretty fragile. And they're generally sort of gray because they've had all the weather doing the weather things. So 
the way I ended up using milkweed, though, um, initially was I found some stuff in the summertime when it was green, which is when you're not supposed to get it. But I uh, had seen a little thing by the man who did the nettle dress. I don't know if you've seen the nettle dress project on Instagram. In the nettle dress project, he gathered, harvested, retted, spun, and wove enough yardage to make a dress. And then his friend recently, they decided to make a film. And so there's actually a film called the nettle dress film. And I have not been able to see the film because they're just slowly releasing it. But eventually, I, I really hope to. And But he was the first person who talked about collecting the nettles when they were green. Okay. And so that you could go out and literally peel the white fibers from the inside. So I ended up trying that with some milkweed. And I worry a lot about milkweed, even, even talking about it, because... It's um, a wonderful pollinator, and I, you don't want to go out harvesting mad lumps of milkweed in the middle of its pollinating season, or it's also vital to the, to the monarch butterflies. And so it's best to harvest it after the monarchs have done their thing, if there are monarchs actually in your area. But the stuff I have found turned out to be some stalks that a friend had planted in her garden. It was taking over. It got covered with aphids. She got grossed out. She yanked it out and threw it in her compost pile. And I was saying something about milkweed. And she said, oh, I just did that. And I just was, can I have it? So we went to her compost pile and pulled out the milkweed. And I think the aphids had left at that point. And I took it home. And literally, you peel off the bark and then kind of peel the fibers out from that. It's, a, again, a ridiculously slow and labor-intensive process. Okay. But the fibers are beautiful. And unlike leaves, which when they get dry, get brittle and crack, these have the same qualities as, as linen or flax so that you can make cloth out of it. They just get softer and glossier and more beautiful. And my initial first attempts I'd made, um, I would just make little lengths of cordage out of it. And then I would wrap them around my wrist and they'll last a year sitting around, just tied around my wrist. Right. Getting wet, dry, everything. It's just phenomenally strong and beautiful and and lovely. Unlike coffee filters, which are ridiculous. <laughs> Tell me about the coffee filters. Because this these things that you're talking about, they all have a certain grayish element to them. You know, to some extent, even the linen, if it's in its natural state or you know, maybe not the cordage, but the uh, the milkweed that I see that's been redded. There's a certain grayish element to it, and some of your work is so colorful, including these coffee filters. I well, dyeing, <laughs> yes, D- dyeing, dyeing is a thing I have done for years. So that is as a parallel. It always exists for me as a as a possibility. But the, the coffee filters initially, again, I can't say where the idea first came. Other than that, I was weaving, I was weaving some tiny tapestries in preparation for or perhaps after the fringe lift class that that Rebecca and I teach. And I was making just just very, very small ones that I was then making little books using the tapestries as covers for the little tiny books. And my friend Velma, who spins Kemi Ito, which is the the spun paper, sent me a little tiny bit. She tied up something, a little present in just like maybe a foot. And I thought, oh, I will weave that in. And I loved it so much. 
that I was just sort of, well, paper, what, what paper, what paper can be spun? And I went around my house trying absolutely any paper I could find. And some instantly dissolved and some did not. And I came to learn a little bit about the qualities of different kind of essentially waste paper, because for whatever reason, I just didn't want to buy paper to cut to spin. Okay. It just seemed like, well, if I'm going to buy it, I'll buy something else. The pleasure of using what's at hand, uh, yeah, I think, is elemental and I can only, well, I don't know. It could have come back from when I was a kid. But there's an element of ingenuity to it. It's you're 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 solving an interesting little puzzle that you've made for yourself. That that is probably it too. The the fascination of what works, what will happen, and the, and that piece of exploration. Like, oh, I found this receipt on the sidewalk. I wonder if I I can spin that. And I, I at first was trying it as cordage, but I it actually worked best to cut things in kind of a zigzag. Essentially mm -hmm. take some kind of square piece of paper and make it into a zigzag and then spread that out and dampen it slightly. And of course, some paper, if you dampen it even slightly, just dissolves. And other paper has a little more structure, like the mulberry paper, the washi that, that is traditionally used for uh, shifu is very strong and can handle, handle moisture and these super specific techniques to make it as strong as possible. And I was way more casual than that. But I realized that some dampness was was necessary, especially in this dry climate. It made it made nicer, nicer yarn. So I ended up using either a spindle or uh, my charka, a little book charka that I have, and found that combination just worked beautifully. So again, there there were coffee filters and they're made to be wet, right? Yes. So they should be able to handle this and... I just started and somehow it took. And and the coffee filters, I mean, they cannot be used for warp. None of the paper that I spin is in any way strong. But I think because I'd already had experience weaving tapestry with cordage that, that was strong but not strong and only really okay when it was damp, it didn't bother me to tuck it in as weft. And I mm -hmm. was mostly weaving tapestry with it. And I just found it exquisite. And I can't even describe it. I wish... I knew why I find it so beautiful, but it's a it's such a different surface than wool. It's a different surface than linen, certainly the linen that I spin. And yeah, I, I am almost speechless because it is almost embarrassing how much. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I really love about your work is that there is a sense of kind of whimsy and play where, you know, you have these huge tapestries made out of little tiny receipts and you have little teeny tiny books. You know, it, I get the feeling that you're just having a lot of fun. I am having a lot of fun. I do. I think I have felt from the moment I began to say, I, I, which I don't know quite when that was, I think, I guess when I quit school the second time and committed to tapestry. And I think it was tapestry that let me in to a place where I got to play and where pretty much every time I start doing the things I do, I feel like I am getting away with something <laughs> in a big way. Yeah. Like, how do I get to do this? How is this even possible that I get to find out about coffee filters and make them into things that I find pleasing? How is it now that I get to write the gusset about these things that I make 
And it's not that none of it, it's not that all of it isn't an incredible amount of labor intensive work and hours and I have, you know, broken my body in all manner of ways doing it. And yet I still feel I am still enchanted by the possibilities and the things I get to do and how incredibly fortunate that is. And and I think it's because the materials give back to me so much. They give back so much beauty and so much light and the way they, all the different materials, the way they play with light and air and yeah, I feel like the things that I love making the most are the things, it's a, it's a reciprocal relationship that we have. And if there isn't a reciprocal relationship, then that's not a path I tend to follow. But for some reason, yeah, the, the, there is a playful piece, which is amusing in some ways because people say, you shouldn't work so much, you should play. And it's like, but I love my work. My work is it is definitely work and it is also play. It is my vocation and my avocation at once. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about how, you know, a sense of place and local materials are, we always have these textile metaphors, but are a thread that carries through your work. But, you know, something else that really carries through your work is lines and text. So there's a drawing and an image and some words. I was thinking about books you are the author of Kids Weaving, mm-hmm. and you have also these little tiny books, which are bigger than a postage stamp, but smaller than a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Linda has one, doesn't That's she? Right. Linda Ligon does have one. Uh, and we were just, we love them. They're, they were part of, you lent them to us for the Long Thread book. Yes. But then also you have a couple of independently produced books that were both PDF ebooks and hand-stitched books about tapestry weaving. So what is it that makes you want to, to create these various, all these kinds of books? Oh, gosh. That, again, a slow thing that builds. I mean, I've always been a, a reader, certainly a person who loves books. But the actual binding of the books, why that made sense to me, I think initially it had to do with the one-offness of everything I made. You make one tapestry and you can sell it once or keep it or whatever. You take pictures of it and then it goes off into the world. And there were things that I wanted to say that I wanted to share more. I felt like also tapestries are extremely expensive. I mean, I hand spun all my warp and my weft. Wow. Um, Not so much always the warp anymore, but for the bulk of the very large wool tapestries that I wove from... 9090, really, until I can't remember when I finished the last one, 2015, maybe. I haven't done a big wool one since then. Maybe, maybe later than that, 17, 18. Anyway, I spun almost all of the warp and the weft. So they are ridiculously expensive to buy. And I felt like I wanted to connect with more people in a way that both would say some of the things I had to say and also allow them the joy of actually making them? And how do you do that often other than traveling to teach? Mm -hmm. And I have said a lot of times, I am not a good traveler. I love being home and I'm best off home. And I I have learned marvelous things from traveling and and from teaching, but it's, I I wanted another way to share. And certainly in the, the zines, that enabled me to put writing those and creating them and label me to to say so for instance the weaving a bag on a box 
was the first one, How to Weave a Bag on a Box, which was an article, something I did. I wrote an article for Spinoff mm-hmm. about it. Right. And then later another one for Handwoven with a slightly different slant. And then a few, it was several years after that, I thought, I wonder if I could make this as a, as a comic, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and comics, the word and picture combination, I think that was actually, a, that was a mind blower for me. And I'm pretty sure that didn't begin until after I finished or along with weaving the word tapestries, which is a series of 13 tapestries where I wove parts of a novel that I had written. Um, Again, all of these things, one thing leads to another. I, I wrote Kids Weaving, got that going, realized I loved to write. And sort of in that space of how, how can I do this? How can I how can I keep up with the ideas? I guess there were just so many ideas. I felt overwhelmed. And so there must be another way other than tapestry to, in a sense, record my life, because most of the tapestries that I wove are narrative diary tapestries. Mm. Almost I feature centrally in a lot of them, partly because it's really easy to use yourself as a model <laughs> when you're alone a lot. But later it became how do I tell these stories faster or and so I actually tried fiction for a while or I got I, I called it getting ill with fiction. It felt like I, I had the flu and I couldn't stop. When I started writing, I think the reason I was writing the novels was because I was in a sense wanting to capture my feeling of luck, of good fortune to get to do all these things mm-hmm. and imagining a world where people did, where textiles were central. And I essentially created a place called Palouse by the Sea, which I live on the Palouse. Mm -hmm. And when the wheat, tall and blowing, when it blows in the wind, the gusts move through it a lot like the sea. Yeah. Now, I'm sure sailors wouldn't say that. I, I grew up spending summers in Rhode Island, so I learned to sail quite young. But you can watch a gust moving through just like you can watch a gust move across the water. Oh, here comes a gust tighten your mainsail yep. your, and head up into the wind. And I feel that way as I drive across the Palouse sometimes and a gust comes across and it's moving the wheat. So I invented this place called Palouse by the Sea. The idea came to me. I started writing about it. I ended up writing three books, which I called novels, but really were just how do you write fiction? How uh-huh. do you write whatever? But the characters were very loud and very strong and I had to, I had to do it. And Eventually, I got mad. I wanted to stop. I really didn't want to be a writer of fiction. That didn't feel right. But I still couldn't get myself to leave the words alone. The words kept coming. And as a joke to myself, I think, or I may have said to my husband, I should just weave these words and then I would cut them off the loom and I would be done. And it was a joke. And then I thought, well, I could weave words, couldn't I? Why not? I yeah. wonder if I could weave words. And I thought for a bit about uh, stitching them. I, I actually did some some stitching. Like, could I do some needlepoint? And could I needlepoint the words? And I ended up tried needlepoint. I tried embroidery just to see what worked best because it really weaving them in tapestry seemed crazy. But why? Because it's very time consuming. Because it is very time consuming, because you the way that you work, fitting in each letter, it's extremely fiddly. And it didn't occur to me that I would or could do it, except that once I tried it, 
I loved it, <laughs> as with so many other things. So what I ended up doing was just taking the beginning of one of the novels, the sort of preface of one, and dividing it up into chunks and editing and editing and editing and editing. And I actually love editing. I love cutting out mm-hmm. tons of stuff, which I'm sure you will have a good time doing. Let's <laughs> talk. Because there's a lot of stuff you can cut out when you have the material, but trying to get it down to the essence of a scene or a moment. The first one that I wove, I thought I was going to weave just one, which was the very beginning, the opening lines of this novel. And I wanted to get across in the tapestry itself that notion of being involved in writing and editing, which means you're madly scribbling or typing anytime an idea shows up on whatever piece of paper you have at hand. And you'll probably spill your coffee on it and you'll spill your tea on it and it will get torn, but you're desperate to get it down and it doesn't matter. So that very first tapestry is basically a coffee-stained piece of paper blown up to 800% of the actual piece of paper on which I typed the words. And they all, I included crossouts and all of the, all of the tapestries include crossouts and the imperfections of process because I love the process so much. And I, as a tapestry, the process was important. Anyway, all of that, I started weaving one and I wove the one and I thought this was great. I'm going to do some more. And it was, it was great. And it took me four years. I committed to these 13 tapestries. And again, Handspun warp and weft, not much dying except to make the wool that was masquerading as paper look like some kind of paper. I just loved it. And I think somewhere in there, the bookbinding piece came. Oh, except the very first bookbinding I learned was at a workshop in Colorado at a Denver Convergence. Sarah Lamb and I took a bookbinding workshop together. Uh Uh-huh. And that's where I learned the very basics. And mostly I learned that I don't like glue. So I only do ones that I can stitch together. I use pamphlet stitch or Coptic bindings. So it's it, it's stitching. Yeah. And then I can stitch with my yarn. Did I go off on a very long tangent then? I think so. That's did it okay. even answer your question? It did. It did. <laughs> so the thing I find really interesting is that, you know, what you're talking about, there's there's so much energy to it and it's taking something small and making it big and expansive. But then just coming back to those little fringeless tapestries with a little house on them. And I, yes. I think there was some cordage in those too. Mm-hmm. And they're so simple. And the fringeless, it's all selvage, no header footer. So mm-hmm. it's kind of metaphorically and literally self-contained. Yes. Is that yes, part of the they appeal? are. That is very much part of the appeal. And I can't remember when I, f- I probably used the first one as a cover for one of my comic diaries. Mm-hmm. And then it occurred to me that I could just make more. And I went through a period where I wove uh, a lot of little fringeless tapestries, specifically for books, although they weren't necessarily initially. I think initially I was experimenting with tininess and with the container. And I think that definitely came after finishing the very large tapestries, which are, you know, take up a lot of space and are hard to sell and store. And the enchantment of the little contained pieces and also 
the fact that when it's a book, you get to handle it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that makes me sad, in a sense, about weaving art for the wall is that there is this do not touch about it. There is that this is so precious that you can't touch it. When in fact, actually, if you own a tapestry, it's a really good idea to walk by and shake it regularly just to keep the dust off, to keep anything from settling. And there is a, I've always loved the clothness of tapestry, the, the touchness, the drape, and the little tiny books, you don't get the drape, but you do get to hold them. You do get to touch them. You do get to turn the pages and and hold them in your hand and watch the light move through. And when you have little slits and then you turn the page and the light shines through the slits and I just love it. <laughs> and the houses, the tiny houses are like that too, because they have using, using slit tapestry mm-hmm. technique, you end up with the slit where the light comes in. And I think the tiny houses, they just showed up. I just was practicing fringeless warps, getting ready for this class, I think. And I, what shall I weave? Oh, I'll just weave a little house. Yeah. On a hill on the Palouse. And I loved it so much. I wove another and another and another. And it, after a while, I thought, this is ridiculous. How can I still be interested in this? And, you know, it must appear so tedious from the outside, but then so much of what I do probably appears tedious from the outside. <laughs> and sometimes I have to remember that it's okay for me just to be enchanted mm-hmm. by what I'm doing and the repetition of it, which is part of the enchantment for me, the repetition with little shifts, with what happens if I use this other material? What happens if I use this other color? What happens if I make this other thing a little bit bigger? How did those fringeless tapestries come to be? I mean, I know it's a project that you and Rebecca teach together. Did you guys develop it in tandem? No. I first heard about the fringeless technique from um, Archie Brennan and Susan Martin Maffei, who were incredible, incredible tapestry weavers and mentors of mine. And I've taken workshops from them. You asked a long time ago if I was self-taught. And all I've ever really had is weekend workshops. I've had I had that one weekend workshop, wove on my own for five years, took another weekend workshop from Mary Lane, wove on my own, took another, you know, I took a week of workshop at Convergence. And so it's very, it's mostly that. But I did take a week-long workshop from Susan on the fringeless technique. And I went to to El Tuito, uh, Mexico, where Jean-Pierre La Rochette and Yale Lurie have a house, a phenomenal tapestry team. Yale designs them and Jean-Pierre weaves them. And they invited Susan and Archie down and I saw that this was happening. And for all that I do not like to travel, I (laughs) knew about the fringeless technique. She calls it for salvage weaving and for salvage warping. And I went down there and spent a week learning her way of doing it. Came back, wove, I don't know, eight or 10 small nine-inch square tapestries, which ended up being kind of the beginning of my comics piece because I saw that they they could be sequential narrative. You could put a bunch of small tapestries together to tell a story that I would otherwise have told with a large tapestry. And that was fascinating to me. So I did a lot of this fringeless weaving. Again, you could, because of the structure of it, you use a jig 
for winding the warp, which I won't go into the explanation, but it allows the tapestries to be exactly the same size. Mm, of course. Mm -hmm. So I could then, yeah, I could then make 10 tapestries exactly the same size with different images on them, which then became the pages of a book. In fact, that may have been my first book of that nature was, in fact, a book where the pages were the tapestries, not the covers, but the pages. And the actual cover, in fact, of the first one I did called Casting Off was cloth covered cardboard. Huh. And in inside, the pages were tapestries. And because one of the things that I do is I weave in all my ends as I go when I weave tapestry, which is not a traditional European tapestry thing to do. But what it allows me to do when you are weaving a page and handling that page is you can turn the page and you get the reverse image. Oh, right. Yeah. So then each page gets to be used twice. In a sense, you get it on one side and then you get it on the other side. And that was my first introduction to sequential storytelling of that nature because I could turn the page and you have the same image, but from a different perspective and in relation to a, the next page, mm -hmm. which you would then turn. So it I was just enchanted with the idea of that and have woven a couple of those where the, where the story is actually woven into the cloth. And I think that was the beginning of me making books, although I ended up flipping it to where the tapestries were the covers and then I used paper on the inside and then drew my own life, as it were, on the inside as it unfolded. This tapestry book pages, you'd also be playing with reversibility. And I suppose a lot of tapestry is that way or, you know, when you're working with backstrap weaving or things like that. The fact that there's not, there may be a right and a wrong side, but you know, people can still go and look at the other side. That's yes. kind of a cool element. It, it feels, it's always felt important to me. And I know other traditions use, we, weave in the ends in different ways. My, the way I do it is half invented, half sort of borrowed from other traditions, like untwisting the yarn and separating it rather than cutting it so that the ends all blend in. But that ability to do that. You, you, had, you had asked about how the fringeless thing came about. And I think I start, I was using it a lot. And then Michael Rohde, who's another wonderful tapestry weaver, came up with a slightly different approach, a variation on Susan's, which I began to use and added that into my repertoire, I guess. And I think it was Michael who, who ended up with using sort of a wooden fixed jig and uh, I was using essentially Michael and Susan and Archie's techniques all mashed into one. And when Rebecca said, hey, would you be interested in teaching this class? I said, well, I don't know. It's not, I don't know if it's even my technique because it is Michael and Susan and Archie. So I actually contacted all of them to say, would you be okay if Rebecca and I taught this this way? Because I really felt like there's a lineage. There's always a lineage. And when you can truly trace that lineage, it seems super important to honor it and, and not pretend that I invented it myself. Though I certainly wove a lot of stuff. I, I can't even count the number. So, so it became very, very, I'm so, so, so comfortable with it. And it's still my most go-to technique. So it made sense for me to work with Rebecca on that. And she essentially filmed me teaching. Oh, okay. Uh, she came to, to my studio in Moscow and we spent a week together having a 
wonderful time. I mean, it was hilarious and delightful. And and I think one of the things we both discovered is that was very satisfying is that we both we both just love to work. We both still love to do the work and we love to be involved in it and figuring it out. And we'd sit there at breakfast thinking about how best to approach a particular thing. And that was just delightful because you don't often always find people who love who love the work in that same way. I'm sure you have worked with people like that, oh, though, yeah. and you're just like, yes. Although I am much more of an arm waver, as you can see, which although you can't see it on the podcast. <laughs> and Rebecca is a really, really good teacher. And so she was able then in the editing process to see where I had left out gaps and then to film herself describing some very specific things that we didn't get on film or didn't realize were especially important. And I think that made it a really, really good video because you get both techniques in the class. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about tapestry weaving, large and small. Are you still, you know, knitting and spinning as part of your regular practice? Absolutely. Yes. The the, the short answer is yes. I have never stopped knitting except for a year and a half when my hands went fluey. And it had to do with overuse and tension and various things. Sure. It, tur- it turned out a lot of it was in my shoulder, actually. Really, I had too much. I had some intense stuff in my shoulder and, and arms and uh, rotator cuff. And I had to do my arm. My, essentially, my hand was going to sleep every time I picked up my knitting. Oh, no. And yeah. So I just essentially stopped. I stopped knitting and I cut way back on the weaving for for a period of time. That was extremely hard. But otherwise... Yes, I think I have always had a sweater on the go. And like I've made many sweaters for other people and I've given away a ton of sweaters. But I think in the same way that I use myself as a model for so many of my tapestries, I make my clothes Hmm. and I see most of my sweaters as my clothes. And somewhere along the line... In the moments of perimenopause, as happens to some of us, Mm -hmm. and we start being very warm and then we are very cold. And it occurred to me that one of the properties of wool is that it can absorb moisture and still keep you warm. So I began to spin some quite fine, increasingly fine yarn and knitting sweaters that I could wear next to my skin that did not have any cotton layers underneath that would get clammy and cold. The thing I didn't realize is that you would get the cold part. And I was just freezing. I spent tons of time being freezing. Mm-hmm. So I, I noticed that I, I just, I wanted to try to make shirts, essentially wool shirts. And because it never occurred to me not to spin the yarn, I began spinning some very, as soft fleeces as I could get. And it, again, it's been a long, slow process, the finding what fleeces I liked, what yarn, and but most, because mostly I I have gotten my fleeces as locally as I possibly can. Sure. And for years, I went to a a friend. She no longer lives outside Moscow. She lived on the Palouse near Colfax. And she raised both very fine fleeces. She had some Rambouillet and Rambouillet crosses and some Cormo crosses over time. And then also Lincoln and then Coopworth. And it was from her, actually, that I got both my tapestry yarn and my knitting yarn. I also got a lot of knitting fleeces from... The Ortmans in Wolf Point, Montana, who have Cormo and Targi and Deboulet, those breeds and those and those particular fleeces have formed the basis for my wardrobe pretty much my summer and winter. And so I have very lightweight ones 
And I spend almost entirely on a spindle these days, probably the past six years. I've spun only on a spindle. So I'm not swamped with yarn or sweaters because they're fine. I'm knitting them on size one, American size one or two. What are those in millimeters? 2.5 millimeters, two, two and a half millimeter uh, needles and very fine breed specific yarns that I make. And so knitting is always there. And sometimes I will sometimes give those away, but those are, though they're my clothes. They're what I wear more than t-shirts or anything else. My early knitting around the time of knitting in America was much more elaborate, was much more, I was learning about color and shape and pattern. And I adored, adore doing that. But somewhere along the line, I went for the practical clothing thing. Yeah. Well, and if you make it well and keep it up well, you don't need to make all that much because it lasts a long time. Exactly. Exactly. And then also, if you wear them a lot, they go through their pilling phase. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of discussion. People fret about pills, but I just feel like everything I make has a pilling phase, like teenagerhood. And if I keep wearing it, it gets through it. And then there are no more pills ever. And I can wear the same thing for years. I did a few years ago, uh, one of the zines, the PDFs we talked about was a, a one I wrote called Backstrap Dialogues, which was another one of the side things, sort of like coffee filters, as in, I must try this. The point initially was to weave words. This is a long aside, but the point was to weave words and sentences as I thought of them uh, sequentially, rather than from a cartoon as I did for that large tapestry project. And it worked just fine. You can weave tapestry on a backstrap loom, just a very simple backstrap loom. But what I discovered was that what I really liked was balanced plain weave on mm. a backstrap loom. And I was mortally embarrassed in myself for that because, well, Sarah, you're supposed to be weaving tapestries. What are you doing weaving plain cloth? And <laughs> you don't need yet another thing if you're going to weave plain cloth. There's There are other ways to do that. But again, it was I was I was enchanted by these strips of plain cloth. And so I was spinning, again, this very fine yarn that I would otherwise have knit with. In fact, even finer sometimes the singles without even plying, making gossamer, gossamer blankets that initially for an exhibition at the Latimer Textile Center in Tillamook, Washington. I had a show there and it was wonderful, these swaths of cloth sort of flowing across. But then when they, they all came back, I now sleep under the wool ones and I use the linen ones for bath towels. And oh, they are the best wonderful. bath towels. Oh, they are. I now actually, I don't spin the linen for them. I will. The thing I will buy linen yarn for is to weave backstrap, weave strips of cloth and sew them together and make bath towels. They are the best. They are the <laughs> best bath towels. They're everything the commercials say bath towels shouldn't be, which they're supposed to be plush and thick. These are whisper light and gauzy and they just suck up the moisture and then they dry in an instant so they're never stinky. Yeah, that's important. They are the best. Anyway, a whole nother side thing. That actually reminds me of uh, Kerala towels. My husband is from Kerala, which is in southern India, and they have unmercerized cotton, very, very, very fine towels because it is tremendously hot and humid there. And some people take multiple showers a day. I certainly would. And yes. so I find it really hard to believe that, nope, next day they're dry. That is it exactly. I wish, I, and it I surprises me that I had never even heard of that because it was just, oh, I'm going to try this. And yeah, what is it when you notice 
something that makes so much sense. Like, oh, I love this. I find this beautiful. You just see it. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder how many people come to spinning, come to weaving, do you find in the magazines because they see it and they are enchanted. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some. They look at someone spinning and say, I have to, I have to do that or see, mm -hmm. see a weaver and say, just let me throw the shuttle. I have to do it. So we've touched on a lot of themes that I have been seeing in your Substack recently, the gusset, including your sweet dog, Beryl, who is new to you. But there is an element to it of here's what you're working on and sort of some digressions and some really playful drawings and illustrations. And I just have this feeling sometimes that I would love to come and live in the pages of your book. Are you finding that that people are responding to it that way? A few people are responding that way, but more, in fact, from the comments are responding the way I would love, actually, which is they are then falling in love with their own life. They're remembering that they have the capacity to be enchanted by what they are doing, by the yarn in their hands, by their dog, by their knitting, by the flowers that's growing in their garden. And if there's anything I would love to share, it is that. It is that we get to be enchanted by our own lives and that in the midst of all the stuff in the world, the delight that can be found in the smallest thing in light and texture and fiber and an amusing dog and ink and water for, in my case, ink and watercolor for somebody else. It might be colored pencils and embroidery. And we have so many ways as artists, as textile workers of all sorts, whether you call yourself an artist or not, to be enchanted by our days and in the smallest ways, which then influence the larger ways. And I think that leads to a kind of contentment that I would wish on everybody. Because I, I, I mean, in the larger global scheme, it feels like so much uncertainty and fear comes out of a lack of contentment, a lack of belief in our own right to notice what we notice and to love what we love. And so much of what I love is patently absurd. And yet I feel okay getting to love it and me writing about it and drawing comics about it. I feel that I get to delight in the absurdity and also take it seriously. I, th I think it's possible because I tend to be a fairly buoyant person mm -hmm. to assume that I don't take things seriously. But in fact, I feel like the things that I take the most seriously are the things that I can be the most lighthearted about, the most joyous about, the most uh, enchanted by. And that feels important to note that. And I think that's kind of what I try to do in my comic diaries. You know, you talk about being enchanted by all these things. One of the things that I think a lot of us, certainly me, struggle with is you can be enchanted by something if you're not, but if you're not getting the results that you want, if you don't think it looks good, if you think it is without artistic merit, it can be difficult to sustain the enthusiasm to keep it going. That is true. 
that is true. And there are many things that I have made that I have ended up in the compost heap. Mm -hmm. I have to say, my garden is nourished by many things that I have made that I have not loved. What I find is that within all that, it is often is not the process that enchants me. And also that often we get stuck in certain paths and forget that there are windier ways to get where we want to go. Hmm. As an example, a long when was that? 2005, maybe? I can't remember. I was teaching at a store in uh, south of Bend, Oregon, Sun River, Oregon. And the class I was teaching, I can't remember what it was called, but the purpose behind the class was to make, start with a fleece and end up with an idea and find your path to it in terms of choosing the fleece that you wanted, choosing the preparation method, choosing the spinning method. And it was for knitting at that moment. But if you like knitting with very smooth yarn, do you have to comb it? Do you have to follow? Well, and people would find, well, here, I'm going to try combing, but actually I like carding better. Mm -hmm. So, oh, well, let's see if we can use carding to get the results. So you get to pick your path all the way through finding the things that you like to do. And if you don't like spinning top, don't start with top. Let's start with something else and approximate top so that your hands are happy and you're happy. And I feel like we often can find ways, places, but we forget that. We feel like there is one path and it turns out this one part of it just doesn't work for us. And then we stop. And it's like, but I still... I still want to be able to play fun tunes on my concertina. Mm -hmm. And I am not a good musician. I have not been trained since I was a child. I've made a lot of really awful sounds. I actually play the concertina in part because I don't have an ear. My intonation on the fiddle was not, did not make me happy. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to play tunes. I wanted to play these tunes and I wanted to be relaxed playing the tunes and I couldn't be relaxed playing the fiddle. I still love the fiddle. I love other people playing the fiddle, but I found a different way. I found an instrument where the intonation was fixed so that I had to hit the right button. The concertina has its own way of delivering sound, which I had to learn, but ultimately that way suited me better as a way to get to play tunes. And I had to set aside a dream I once had to play fiddle tunes on a fiddle mm -hmm. because that way led to frustration. That absolutely makes sense. So it seems like what you're talking about is being curious about how to get to the place you want, even if it means somehow choosing a, a different method for getting there. Yes, yes. But finding a method that suits you mm -hmm. because we're all so different the way our brains work. I mean, the things we learn, I, I, I sometimes think the pandemic taught a lot of introverts it allowed them to be introverts and to learn that, you know, I really do best in small groups. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. I can now be kind to myself and not force myself to be with large gatherings. Whereas other people found, I thought I was an introvert. It turns out I really do best in live things with people. That's good to know. And we don't always know that about ourselves. Yeah. I think it's going to take a long time for us to learn 
all the various paths we could have taken there were. Exactly. Process, which is what all of this is. It's the process of making cordage. It's the process of gathering materials. I have to say, a lot of the local gathering stuff, I just love gathering things. I like gathering songs. I like gathering ideas. I like gathering lettuce. And so how do we gather our, gather the things that we love so that we can build our lives out of things we love and get to do the things you really enjoy? What do you love to eat? And what's your favorite way to get there? Well, I can't stand frying. Well, then there are probably other ways to, to cook things. Yes, but that doesn't mean the potatoes are off the list. You know, you can. Exactly. You could do something else with the potatoes that will mimic that. And I don't know what it is because I'm just relearning how to cook myself. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your process with me and just generally letting me be inspired by what you're doing. Oh, and it has been such a pleasure. And thank you for inviting me on and for getting to be part of this and letting me ramble in all sorts of <laughs> wacky ways, which I have no idea how you will turn it into a podcast. It will be fun. It will be fun. <laughs> Thanks to Trainway Silks and Peters Valley School of Craft for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. <laughs>